Hi, and welcome to Dharma Things podcast, your monthly injection of bite-sized conversation in something interesting, something enlightening, and with somebody who is really following their own Dharma. And there are very broad definitions of what Dharma may be, but a life path, a life journey, and some kind of calling to do good in the world. So my name is Miz, and this month I am so happy to be speaking to George Murillo. George is from the hip-hop and graffiti, oh, how do we call it, royalty in New York, really. Um, he is a master of graffiti and a hip-hop revolutionary, quite a tongue twister. George Senwan. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you for having me on your show. This is amazing. <laughs> thank you for that introduction. <laughs> I appreciate it. I didn't make up that line myself. I think that's actually on your website. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the revolutionary part is because that's what hip-hop originally was. It was yeah. a cultural revolution by kids, yeah. Absolutely, oh. absolutely. But you are now a gallery artist, aren't you? You're a grown-up and you're a gallery artist and you, yeah. <laughs> and you exhibit around the world as well and you make large-scale paintings for the likes of who? I mean, I read Michelle Obama. Well, that was actually for a charity event that she had. So I've been able, I've been blessed because um, I've been able to combine, I've been able to stay at my roots and do a lot of community work. And that's led me through one path. And then I've been able to pursue a professional path, which then has me like right now in Gallery d'Orsay in Boston, sharing the wall with Picasso's and the Matisse and the, and, and the murals and stuff like that, which is crazy to me. And um, so, yeah, so the Michelle Obama thing had to do with actually a charity I was working with that involved doing the sneakers, sneaker art with inner city kids. And um, they had an event um, in the White House, this is years ago now, I can't, I can't even remember, but it was for an Easter event with her not-for-profit, which was, um, I think it was called, um, it had to do with exercising. It was called um, Just Move, I think. And it was a collaboration with like four other, Dougie Fresh's um, not-for-profit was involved. It was like a different group and I was working with a not-for-profit. So yeah, we had the, the privilege of actually um, customizing, I did, I customized a pair of sneakers that was given to her as a gift from, oh. from the whole collective of, of charities that were actually brought to the White House for that Easter event. So, yeah. So, nice. that was cool. yeah. And this is how we met. I mean, for the listeners, again, George is another person that I came across wherever, whenever I was doing stuff. Um, <laughs> we met in Leeds and you were doing some of your community and charity and youth work there, weren't you? There was a project in Leeds um, called MAPS, which was working with young people from- Music and art production. Yeah, yeah. 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 And um, what was it that you were doing with them? Um, so my partner at the time was, she, she sits on their chair. So we actually combined, since I was out there on a trip, we decided to, um, first I went and I met and I did a, a talk with the kids which was amazing. And then, I mean, I, every time I went there, I did an event. So then um, we ended up doing, um, teaming up with Outlaws uh, Yacht Club and we decided to do a fundraiser, which then um, we did a talk. 
And I think it was also with Chris Madden's show. I forgot what it was called that remember he had. He was oh, a host yeah, of a yeah, show. Yeah. yeah, he was a, a host of a show. So it kind of like combined a whole bunch of things at once. But it was, yeah, to raise some money for that. Because again, that's part of like the balance that I have in my life with the art is that um, I've been able to still do a lot of a blessing, which I'm still able to reach because because of the graffiti having that that youthful to it, I'm able to still be able to reach young people. But at the same time, because hip hop um, at the time, it wasn't just something that we did for fun. It was also out of poverty. Poverty. It had uh, economics to each element, a way of making money from the street level, which was basic skills. Like if you could dance, then you could stand in the corner with a, with a bucket and earn some money versus begging and entertain people. The same way with graffiti, you could actually, you know, do flyers for parties or, or do walls, murals, do people's clothing, jackets, and people paid you. This is from a street level. This is, you know, like we're talking about 12, 13 year old kids that don't have any other means of making money. You know, we able to use our craft to actually make what we call survival money, you know, enough to eat, enough to, you know, buy your own stuff. You know, this, you know, so that's where that comes up. You know, DJ, DJ's a little party, charges $2 at the door, you know, makes his little money and the MC, which used to host the party, that's where rap comes from, master ceremony, they would get the cut, a little cut out of that. So each element had a way of making um, survival money, like we would call. So that's the same thing I'm able to like teach some of the inner city kids today is like, all right, you know, especially with the internet is like, all right, let me show you how to design some sneakers real quick and some clothing, because then you could go off and if you can't get a job, if you can't do something, at the very least, you might be able to make a few bucks, you know, selling your art, you know, okay. selling your Yeah, fantastic. So, the, so you're giving them life skills through their creativity. I mean, I'm a perfect example of that. I never passed the time grade. I don't have a GED. I have no, I'm self-educated. And we just talked about sitting in a gallery in Boston next to, you know, literally right now next to a Picasso original. You know what I mean? So, and that all comes from something I learned when I was, you know, 10, 9, 10, 11 years old, 12 years old. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. I've mastered it by, by 12, 13, I'm already mastering this art form. And then here I am at 53 and it's here to say, you know, keep me alive, you know, which is mm -hmm. amazing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, hip hop is like, we often just think of, uh, of hip hop, just think of hip hop. Some of the artists that we see now it's all big and glamorized. I don't know whether anyone will listen, listening will remember the 80s hip hop artists in terms of the music. And I often wonder if people realize that there is this depth to the culture that was a, an all encompassing thing for the communities like the ones that you grew up in in New York. Um, a lot of people hear about the music. I'm in Denmark right now. And like I said to you when we were chatting, people here um, just don't notice the depth of the culture we might do in the uk where i'm from originally there's a lot more of a connection to american culture um but, these but also but also sorry to jump in but also the uk to give it a lot of credit it got hip-hop really early at a mm. time when it was also going through a similar situation i mean because i know graffiti writers from out there from the 80s like whether it's mid to late 80s but that means they were like one of the first ones to actually grab it, even, even before some places in America got it. The UK yeah. was, and the enthusiasm of the UK 
And because of the Caribbean communities and all these other communities they had there, yeah. basically latched onto really early. I mean, people be surprised yeah. how early. There's you know, a lot of similarities. I mean, people wonder these days why there are so many similarities in the UK with America. But if you look back through culture and, and creative culture historically, like we ended up getting Northern soul music into Liverpool and Manchester because the records were brought over on mm. ships that, and, and, you know, uh, goods that had been brought from Detroit and places like that, you know, different records were brought over. And that was in the, in the sixties and Northern Seoul, particularly in the North of England, where I'm from, it was massive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is to a lot of people. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, God, I've seen some photos recent recently on the British Culture Archive of some of the Wigan Casino nights that just looked crazy, <laughs> incredible, <laughs> incredible. And then I think we, there was had... also an exchange coming here as well. I mean, yeah. you take a, you take an artist like let's say Slick Rick, for instance. You know, what I mean, he came from the UK mm. and settled in Bronx and. You know, I was listening to him before he made his records. We was listening to him and Dougie Fresh doing um party jams, and mm -hmm. he had his style. So you know, and and he had that British accent, you know, that he brought along with him, and yeah. that kind of like also gave him his that the edge that he had in the storytelling. So you know, in a way, like you know, hip hop actually was amazing because whatever gave out actually would come back. The energy it was a weird situation at the time. I guess yeah. that happens when anything is new, you know, in a way. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's this global cultural form, really. Um, and it's really socially and politically driven, much as we see the glamour and the and the glitz of certain artists at the moment. Essentially, when you go back to the roots of where hip hop culture comes from, it's socially and politically driven and economically, like you said, you know what you were using your skills to have a life. Um, so it changed your life. What, what was it like growing up in New York in the eighties? We always see these cool music videos and stuff. And I often wonder whether people really get what like Grandmaster Flash's song was actually about, you know, do people really overlook that, that point? But there were things before that. There was a lot of stuff before that in the seventies and, um, a lot of stuff surrounding that kind of cool looking funk guy on the music video. What was it really like in New York in the 80s? Well, I was born in Lower Harlem in 1968. And um, I mentioned this to you before. My brother was was um, seven years older than me. Uh, we had two different fathers because um, both our fathers abandoned the situation from, you know, childbirth, from birth. So he wasn't raised. He was really raised by a strong Caribbean mother with, with other Caribbean, you know, aunts and and, and all the neighbors, and it was mostly women, and the women were tough because New York was, um, if you do the archives, it was like probably the worst city in, in America at the time. It was, it was totally, the landlords, like it went totally bankrupt, and then people started fleeing the city that had money, and landlords were basically tied in with the system. They were able to burn buildings down for insurance money, and just, it was just like a weird situation to happen where New York was basically a city that was abandoned by people, um, by the, I always say like the regular working people, right? So you had a place like Harlem that first had its, in the 50s, the Harlem Renaissance and 
all that stuff and the 40s and all the other stuff where it was really a beautiful, expensive place and entertainers and it was a lot of money and it was like Black Wall Street. Then to have like Vietnam Wars and then having heroin flood this, this city and again, the, the economy dropping. And so you went through this situation where prior to me being born, like the city peaking beautifully and then collapsing almost overnight and people leaving and the pollution. I mean, we couldn't even see the clouds when we was kids. This, they used to call, I mean, if you look it up, it was called the rotten apple. I mean, the cities were covered in garbage, rubble, buildings were just burnt down. Um, so basically every next to almost every building, there'll be like an empty lot, uh, a junkyard, empty lot, um, or shells of buildings. So they actually classify, there's documentaries which classify New York in the 70s as a, as a European bomb city. You know what I mean? They classify it as being like a city that's been through war, which was, and you can see it through the Basquiat films documentary, you see it. I mean, it's all out there. All you gotta do is Google New York in the 70s. So that's how it was. There was like no opportunities. Um, there was a lot of crime, but um, not like the crime today. Like it wasn't like, there wasn't people just like when the son of Sam happened and he was like a serial shooter, that was like a big thing. So there wasn't a lot of shooting. It was more of like survival crimes, like anywhere you went, it was almost like being in a jungle. Like if, if an animal, if an animal senses another animal is weaker or is it's, it can't fight back, it's gonna attack. So at that time, that's how we was. We was like, the people were like animals in a jungle. So even the women, even the older women, no matter what, were on their highest alert so that they wouldn't become victims because that was your first line of defense that you look somebody in the eye and you let them know, even if they were stronger than you, it's gonna be a fight. You know, you're not just gonna do what you want to me. So that was the intensity in the city. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. Mm. So like, and then there was straight dogs running around. I mean, this place was like, I mean, it's, it is like something you can't even imagine really like to see this New York like today and then to imagine it, how it was, but mm. there'd be like packs of straight dogs in the street. So at night, you know, you basically get surrounded by these dogs that come to attack you. And I can remember my mother holding me and saying she had this prayer that she had from the Caribbean where she would like say it to the animals like in a, in a dominant way to make them stop in their tracks and then back them up. Like she would say this whole thing to them and, and then we would have to sneak away you know what I mean? It was crazy back then. So it was like a constant challenge to survive. It was, um, so as kids, we developed that. So growing up in the seventies, um, you basically, every neighborhood, every few blocks was like a territory and you couldn't really go into other territories. And then there was areas that were like more, like if you had Broadway where it was more commercial, then people could basically move up and down in there. But once you start going up to the other streets, the side streets, those become neighborhoods. And if you walked in there, you was quickly recognized as not being from there. And you was basically challenged and even attacked or chased out. Um, and then it was also- Literally just a few blocks of houses. Yeah, every- You were and then there was also, in a pretty small space then. Yeah, and then, and then, and there was some that had bigger spaces. It, it would depend. And then those that have big, powerful gangs that will control it. But that was that started from from people of color migrating to these areas and and white neighborhoods not wanting us in there. 
Mm-hmm. So you can see movies like Bronx Tale and all those. They set barriers where white neighborhoods, if you came in, you was getting beat up and yeah. chased out. They didn't want you there. So we eventually did that. You know what I mean? But we did it in a scale where it wasn't basically race. It was based on you live here, you welcome. You know, you do a family member or somebody lives here. So basically for you to be going in and out of a neighborhood, in order for you to get a pass to do that, people had to see you with like some relative or somebody or hanging out with somebody and then they'll approach you, yo, who's that? Oh, this is my cousin, boom, boom, you know what I mean? So the yeah. gangs, so the original gangs were these outlaw gangs. They looked like Hell's Angels and um, the city was covered in them. Um, so in my neighborhood, we had the Sandmans, which later on will become what I, I eventually became a member of, which is La Familia, West La Familia. But those, they were more like a mafia though. They wasn't like the gangs that people know today. They mm-hmm. were they were organized crime families that they back and and dealt with things, but they were outlaws. They they were really rebellious. Like like the law didn't apply to them. No rules applied to them. But remember, we live in a city where there was no rules. Like yeah, yeah. basically, governed yourself. And then the police, the police wasn't really like there for us at all. They were there like to come and like first of all that they were corrupt. They were the ones involved with the Italian mafia or the Irish mafia or the Jewish mafia. So they were involved with like organizing like the drug trades and stuff. So they didn't care about the petty crime. That was our problem. So we had to learn to deal with the day-to-day crimes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you didn't call the cops. So that's where that whole thing originally came from of not trusting the police. It wasn't that, oh, we don't, we don't want the police or they're abusive. No, it was originally had, it was just no relationship. And when they came into the neighborhood, um, they were seen as the enemies from the community. So the community yeah. basically dealt with everything. The outlaw gangs kept other other crimes out. You know, they could commit their crimes, but they kept things in line pretty much. We didn't have rapists. We didn't have things like that because the whole neighborhood would, it would be like they call Perry Justice. You know, they'll take it, they'll, they'll handle it. It'll be like a third world where they'll end up beating somebody to death or whatever in the streets and, and everybody just go home and the cops would come, you know, what happened? Nobody say nothing. Just pick up the body and leave. You know what right, I mean? Right. So yes, it was a different, yeah, yeah. It, was like a, it was like a no man's land. And then, so then out of that being kids, we learned to just come together amongst ourselves and protect ourselves. So that's how the culture originally starts. It starts where people don't understand that like hip hop really started, which is, it's, I was listening to what you were saying and it's crazy because well, a lot of people don't understand today when they see the new generation, and it's not all, but the main new generation is making a lot of money in America, are killing each other. They actually like these gang wars, like they represented Bloods, Crips and stuff like that and, they, and different sets. And they, they use in the rap thing on the internet to fight wars and kill each other, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is happening like on a weekly basis or daily basis, we could almost say at this point, right? The crazy thing is that well, a lot of these young people, because they don't know the history, hip hop actually originates from the outlaw gangs, the elements originating from the outlaw gangs that were actually trying to come together and, and, and bring peace amongst and find another solution to warring. So that's why every element battles each other is a competition so yeah. that you, didn't have, you had an option of not having to fight and have that same energy and intensity of combat um, without ever touching the opponent. But yet, if you won, you had that ultimate respect in your community 
as yeah. a champion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like just, just as if, if you beat the person down, but you did it with your yeah. dance. If you ever see the um, MC battles, any videos of old MC battles, the intensity in the room yeah, because those things is just so yeah. passionate. Um, yeah. And I've often wondered why that is. But that's what it was. It was an alternative mm. so that we could go into battle, combat, all the elements are like that. That's why they're competitive, all of them, break yeah. dance and all that. And you get into that mental arena of a fight uh, and that's why uprock and part of breakdancing, they mimic gang fights. Like they stab uh, each other, they block it, they block in the moves, and they they move in because they imitate in a fight. Uh, so that that's 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 how incredible like real hip hop is. Like yeah. if people understood the foundation, it would actually solve the world's problems. Yeah, but because yeah. it got corrupted, it actually it became so civilized from a from an uncivilized place. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of uncivilized kids came up with this idea and this influence and made it happen that it was way too civilized for this world. And yeah. look how it, the world corrupted it again now. Like now yeah. it's all physical, right? Like forget about the skills. If you battle somebody and they insult you, you, you punch them in the face or, or meet them outside and shoot them. You know what I mean? It went, it became barbaric again from, from a situation where it was barbaric and yeah. we was able to elevate it to probably the highest state of, of, of human consciousness, you yeah. know, through skills and talent. Yeah, so how does that's that, just, I was um, gonna ask you about that. How does that make you feel to see that? Because I mean, the, it, it's the, for a long time now, I mean, like with when there was the rise of Tupac and Notorious B.I.G. and things like that, there was much more of an advocacy of gun violence. And like you said, this warring between the gangs, how does like, after going through what you went through and what your brother went through and your family living on the streets, seeing the gangs come in together to create this unity in the communities, um, how does that make you feel to see that now? That's a good question because I, I, you know, it's because I have young, I have, I have kids and stuff that are now um, in their mid to later twenties and they got caught up with a lot of the, the, 2000 hip hop and stuff. And I used to, I couldn't stand the frequency. I couldn't understand. I hated, I, I kind of like pretty much hated the way the rap industry went. And I was in an industry in the nineties, but um, reflecting, right. And speaking, even speaking to my brother, um, I, I end up having to like face some responsibility in that, you know, like, cause when I got involved, like hip hop, I didn't just Hip hop, see what people don't understand, like hip hop wasn't just an idea that came, that just came to somebody and say, hey, I'm gonna create hip hop. No, it was an evolution of things that have been happening in New York for a long time. And I love that Grandmaster Kaz, he says, and he's one of the founding MCs, right? Um, he says always, hip hop never created anything. It just recreated everything, right? So that, and, that, and that's what's amazing about it. And I think that's why it has a worldwide appeal because of the fact that we as kids that had nothing, all we had was what was out there. Mm -hmm. So you take a record player that your family had, you know, and then you start messing with it as an instrument because you didn't have instruments, you know what I mean? You go, you have these park jams in the street and you steal electricity because we had no place to go and do a club and have a party, you know? So we did it in abandoned buildings and basements and in the park, you know what I mean? Um, you made your own markers, you know, out of deodorant, 
you know, empty roll-on deodorant bottles and you stole the eraser from school and you got some ink where there was like soaking some copy paper and alcohol and made your own ink and then go out and, and write. So early on and then emceeing, you didn't need nothing. You, you sit there with your friends at school and they bang it on a table or in a park and they make a beat and you just rapping, you know, you just, and that's why it came out rapping because it was like, you talking, rapping is talking. But so it it really was like a a really poverty thing where we just created from whatever we had. So, but my generation was a harder generation. And I think that's why mentally I'm really, like I have a lot of issues. Like when I speak to my brother, his generation coming out of, he comes out more of a hippie era, pre-hip-hop. So even the graffiti writers were like, they didn't have the competition we had. And they wasn't under the scrutiny of society yet. Um, so they have free range, they have peace. They could go to a train yard. And while in my generation, Koch had closed all the train yards. So we had a fight basically for the smaller ones underground. The and mayor I, of New York at the time. Yeah, Mayor Koch. Yeah. So when my brother was around, they didn't have that. Like graffiti was so early, nobody paid it no mind. You know, the city, you could go, the cops wasn't really after you. You know, with us, the cops were, beat you and do things to you and put ink on your face or spray paint on your face and smack you up or do whatever they wanted to just to intimidate you. They didn't really have that. You know, they could go to the yard. My brother tells me all the time, he's, they used to go to the yard and they could spend all day there like a playground and have lunch and everything like a picnic, you know, basically not even see another graffiti crew. And if they did, they were cool. They had, open, yeah. they had enough space. My generation, we were basically fighting for every little space to get up. So we had these crew wars. So it kind of like went from where the idea manifested itself but of peace within, the, within it, but never really got fully. So even when you see the rock steady battles with dynamic rockers and stuff, there was lots of times where all it took was somebody to, to touch somebody during the battle for it to turn out to be a fight or a okay. fight later. So yeah, it did curve a lot of the violence for us, but it didn't, it didn't really, like for my generation, it couldn't really heal what we was dealing with. So the violence still came with us. And then soon after that, the drugs got flooded the neighborhood. So as soon as like hip hop began to get known a little bit, all of a sudden we got hit with, for the first time, the drugs was reaching the young kids. Cause prior to that, it was only the adults in the neighborhood. And it would be one or two kingpins and they control the drug trade. So young people, if you was a, like they picked, they control who's gonna be involved with it. Like you couldn't just go and say, I'm gonna sell drugs. No, that was not an option. Like, you know, you, it wasn't happening. You know what I mean? Like, so, so for us, you know, my generation was becomes the generation where I'm coming, I'm becoming 14, 15 years old. And all of a sudden we getting, you know, 10, 20 kilos of cocaine coming, you know, and guns that we never seen before. And we able now to go, yo, we're gonna make $2,000 off of this kilo, you know, $1,000 here. And we are talking about in the eighties where that's like, you know, amazing. You don't have to stand in the corner. You don't have to do any of this. You just like, you know, this person that you know got, you know, 10, 20 kilos of Coke. And it's like, yo, you know, somebody that wants it here, this is the price, charge what you want. 
you know, and then you running back and forth, you don't have to deal. So all of a sudden, you know, forget about hip hop, you know what I mean? Like okay. now you know, yeah. we're going to go into the hustling and then the rap industry happens to get it developed out of that, you know, at that time, a lot of the early labels are started with drug money, you know, so all of a sudden that's, so it, it never, it manifests itself, but the idea never really came to full, to full. So I find myself responsible in a way because I went into the gang culture at 15, you know, 14, 15 years old. Actually, at 15, I had a contract in my life. And um, so I was really into it. And then, you know, and then I was also involved with the drug trade on that level. And then, you know, and then I got into the industry in the 90s, the music industry. So, you know, in a way, like I criticized the young people so much, but then I reflected on myself and said, wait a minute, you know, you you know, you, you played a part in this as well. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you know, we all did, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so it, it, it's a hard pill to swallow because um, a lot of the pioneers that I grew up with, they would eventually succumb to crack and AIDS and stuff. They became victims of, of stuff that, you know, the game that we played, we didn't like, you know, get to fulfill that dream that mm-hmm. we had as young, you know, that mm-hmm. idea. But yeah. it's still the idea is still there. <laughs> yeah. So that really is how we've ended up with the hip hop that we know today of of being more well. I don't know. Not today. Maybe ten years ago. Because today everybody's just really rich. They're all just really rich, and that's well, really not a reflection of the of the nah. society in New York that this came out of. But that that explanation is is. It, it like gives us the, the idea of how the, the gun culture in the nineties hip hop really was a reflection still of what was happening then. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, at the end of the day, like I don't criticize myself to the point where, Oh, it's all your fault. No, it's, it's again, it's, it's society's design when they yeah. flooded the streets with the Coke and the, this is around, you know, um, prior to Reagan and during Reagan, um, Reaganomics. And then as we know, Crack cocaine is created by them, the CIA, with the Iran Contras, and it funds this whole war out there. And then they use the money they made from the inner city and they destroyed us. That was purposely done to make way for gentrification. So in a way, it's like the idea that we had as kids with hip hop was, you know, far fetched when you're dealing with an empire like you know that has a, you know, ha- it has an idea and it has the system to implement the idea, and we had. Although we had a lot of knowledge. I mean, one of the elements of hip hop, you know, you got four physical and one that people never speak about, which is knowledge itself. And that's the difference where today's youth that gets involved with hip hop doesn't know that that's the most important element before you do anything is that you have to have knowledge itself. And that's the reason why people, I think, look back at us and our generation as the kids, because we had that. We had knowledge of self, and that's why we was able to separate ourselves from the system because we knew early on that the money came with a price. We knew we knew that everything came with selling your soul, and we'd rather do it ourselves within our community and survive, even if it was just enough to buy a sandwich that we shared with each other. Yeah. Right? You know, it was it was a victory because we wasn't selling our souls. So yeah, I think yeah. one of the main components today is that. You talked about all that money. All that money comes with a major price. It comes yeah. with soul. And that's why we see the destruction that we see today because um, they take, they've taken a culture 
that was rebellious on that end and successful at that end when we was kids. So that's one of the things I give us credit for prior to the, the rap industry before the Russells and Simmons and the early Def Jams and, and the record labels was that we was doing this for us and ourselves and to cure ourselves and to survive. And it wasn't selling our soul. And we basically like would say that, you know, yeah. like we would look at the older guys like, like we said, Basquiat and those guys going downtown and we, the younger generation, we was looking at them as sellouts. We was like, yeah. even with the Gandhis and them, once they got into where the galleries, like I'm doing today, we looked at them as they were betraying, you know, what we was, what we, you know, what, what this came from. We was looking at it like the films, the movies, you know, we was looking at it like, you know, that's fake. You know what I mean? Look at the, you know, like B Street. I love it today. But back then when B Street came out, it was like, to me, it was like, man, that's corny. That's whack. That's not even, you know, that's not even real. You know what I mean? Like, so we looked, we was really rebellious at everything that, that was coming out because we, it wasn't meant for the rest of the world. Like us being young people, we had this idea of being true to it. And then as you get older, you lose that, you know, and then you fall more into like, like converting to society, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to a point that you were talking about, the the area, and we're maybe diverting from the, the conversation of hip hop, but this really interests me. Um, after talking about such a strong community and this self-policing nature of the community, granted in mainstream terms, you had gangs, but it was a self-policing community. Yeah. Um, this destruction of the community with the drugs what was that all about? Who and how was the community flooded with drugs, which basically destroyed people? Um, but how did that happen? So I'm going to tell you this picture real quick, this painted this picture. So during all the rubbles and all the stuff that I told you, you had, and you can look this up, you had squatting movements where people, they, and I think they do in the UK now, um, certain properties that they were abandoned, the city didn't have control over it. The community took control of it. And they would actually fix them up and people would move in there to solve the homeless problems. So we didn't really like we was we had some, we had homeless problems. But at that time, community could actually resolve their own issues because nobody was messing with us. Everything mm -hmm. was abandoned and nobody cared. Right. So they, and then some of the a lot of the lots, especially in this area, Lower Harlem, um, a lot of the empty lots would turn into community gardens, people coming from the Caribbean stuff. And there was literally chickens running around. Mm -hmm. It was corn being grown. And you could literally just go from your house and go to the garden and grab tomatoes and grab things. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, a, a full farm, but you could survive. So it was all about survival back then. The community looked out. It was actually a beautiful time because neighbors looked out for each other. Kids mm. could sidewalk or we spent all day in the streets and everybody looked out for each other and and of course you got you know you got your whipping when you got home because by the time you got home your mother already knew everything you had done that you wasn't <laughs> supposed to do from the different neighbors so it was a really unique system where people yelled from window to window those whistling systems where people communicated with whistles like even the gangs you could throw up certain whistles and you knew some dangerous was happening or if it was just like i'm here you know letting people know where you at you know wow, so it was like okay. yeah it was really indigenous in a way um of of a, of a, a kind of like a real beautiful way of living and even though it was poverty there was still um there was it's hard to explain but there was like a security um 
and it could be hard, but you was never really alone. And yeah. sometimes that became, as you got older, that became like some you wish you, you could be like left alone. But later on now, I appreciate that looking back because um, it was like you walked out of your apartment. It was like your apartment was just your bedroom. And when you walked outside, the streets was your living room. Like you just, everybody knew each other, whether you got along or not, um, you could fight each other. There was people that people just didn't like, there was bullies and stuff, and you just fought it out. But everybody pretty much knew everybody, knew everybody's business, knew everybody's relatives, knew everything. Yeah. Like your business was out there. So it was a different time. So we took care of each other like that. And then, and then what happened was um, drugs wasn't really big because of the, the younger people knew the effects of heroin. And a lot of the older guys, as bad as they were, um, they would keep you away. Like mm -hmm. the deal is, wasn't like trying to prey on young kids. No, nah, it was the opposite. Yeah. Like they'll, they'll fuck you up for, excuse me. They'll beat you up for, <laughs> for, sorry about that. They'll beat you up for um, putting, getting yourself involved. And then there was certain dealers that will actually recruit their nephews and stuff to do deliveries or whatever. But it wasn't somewhere people were targeting you um, if anything, people are trying to protect you. So I like for me, for instance, I didn't really have uh, like cousins and families like other people had um, that looked out for them. So I was blessed enough that there was a lot of, you know, be considered killers, murderers from the 70s. Like there were hitmen that the mob would use from our community. And they were actually really good people. So it's weird to say that these are killers, you know, that were, you know, being contract to mm -hmm. kill people by the mob and then they'll be like your big brother on the block. Like they'll see you and they'll make sure you was all right. They made sure if you wasn't going to school, like go to school, you know, yeah. I don't wanna see you out here. If they saw you with a certain group that they knew that group was no good. They were, you know, they, they were kids that, that you know, that people knew they were going down the wrong track and they knew that you wasn't really built for that or you wasn't really, they would pull you to the side and be like, yeah. yo, stay away from them or even tell them threatened them so like we saw we took care of each other and then what happened was freebase it was crack wasn't crack yet it was called freebase and um it came in and in the way it snuck in because i i almost got addicted at i probably was like 11 12 years old i think when i first smoked it and um so we used to smoke weed out of bongs you know mm -hmm. like you know so that's how freebase was freebase you had to put in a glass jar with water and and then smoke the cocaine. So when when we first and remember, we this has never been done. So it's like some brand new. So you don't know the effects. You don't know. We just survive and we'll smoke a joint together, all of us. Like we would just, you know, we'll take tabs of mescalines and we'll break it in half in school and share it. Like we was like little like rats basically that shared food. You know, so if one kid came out with something, say, hey, try this, or if he had a 40, you know, beer and you're 10, 11 years old, 12 years old, you guys all shared the beer, you know what I mean? It's just the way it was. One cigarette, you know, if a kid's smoking, if you wanted to smoke, you know, it, it passed around. So that's how it was. So that's how the system actually was able to, to get us on such a big scale was the fact that we were so communal that once it, it entered, it spread like a wildfire. So yeah. Freebasin, it started with Freebasin and that started grab people like immediately, like your first hit addicted boom so the sad thing was that again all it took is for one person in the crew to to learn this from somebody else come mm -hmm. to the crew light up and everybody tries it and then 
the whole crew is addicted. Okay. So, so and this is something that's happening with you and your little crew together and the bigger guys that had been controlling you and keeping you out of their business didn't know that you were doing it. Well, it started with this them. It wasn't actually. their business. No, it started breaking them down first. It started breaking down the older guys first because they were the influences and the older women. So because, see, the thing was back then you had a Coke, a Coke culture. And, but the Coke culture was like a discotheque get dressed, get fly. It was like an older mm. thing. And it was a beautiful thing. It was like a money thing. It was like classy. The people would get dressed up nice back then. Even if you was poor to go to a bar, to a discotheque, you seem like Studio 54 and they would dress yeah. up in these dresses and, and these outfits and they, they really made themselves up. So Coke was like a part of that. So you looked at Coke, like it was just out of our, uh, our league and out of our, our touch. It was more of an adult thing, but it was like a a clean adult thing. It wasn't like a dirty drug at all. It was like it was like a sophisticated nightclub, you know, going out, people dressing up and being happy. And then, you know, then the dealers and, and people will have these little Coke bottles hanging on there, you know, on their thing. And they'll have these Coke spoons and they have a, a long fingernail. Like you knew who sniff and stuff, but they were always clean and nice because it was like a, a money drug. It wasn't like an epidemic. But when Freebase came in, that was different. That that hit, that hit like the streets more. Like instead of going like to the nightclubs, that was like, boom, it hit the streets like, like rat poison. And like I said, once you smoked it, like just one hit, you was hooked. Like me, for instance, I'll tell you my story. So an older member of a gang, and he's just a couple of years older, but back then it was a big difference. Um, he um he's dead now from from crack actually he smoked from then on he never stopped to the to the day he died recently um a few years back so that shows you the addiction mm. so talking about from um early maybe 1970 like by, by 1981 or some 80 or some yeah he came he he you know he was an older dude from the, he was into martial arts he was he was he was um well built, he used to flex out his wings. He was like into fighting. Um, he was, and he was a womanizer, a young womanizer, really good looking dude. Um, and um, Lou Rock is his name. And he came and he had, and he was already, I don't know how he got involved with it, but he came with the, with the little bong and then passed it around. I hit it. And like I said, I was maybe like 11, 12 years old. And it was like, it was an incredible feeling. It was crazy. Like I still remember it today. Like everything opened up. You felt like God, like a Superman. Like you just, it was like an incredible feeling that I, so I ran outside and I was just like, cause you had to get out. You couldn't stay wherever you was at. You couldn't stay there. You had to like get out because you could feel like all the senses and the world, like you could feel like you could fly. Like it was crazy. So I get on the streets and literally like 10, 15 minutes later, the high leaves you. And then you're going from this like invincible feeling like, and you're feeling everything to all of a sudden, nothing. Like you go from feeling like a God to like nothing. And then, and then right away I called my mother on a payphone collect because we didn't have money back then. It was like a dime for the phone booth. And even a dime was, was like, that's a bag of candy. You know what I mean? Like that. And I called collect and that was an ass whipping already because my mom's picked up the phone, it was collect. And, she, and when she heard that collect thing, forget it. They lost, they lose their mind because, you know, that, that was expensive for them. And then I said to her, mom, I need $5. And then she was like, 
what? Five dollars? What you want five? Yo, get 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 upstairs. You're gonna get it. And, and that that basically saved me. I'm gonna be honest with you. I got so scared that I realized what I was doing. I hung up the phone and I knew that I was gonna get the beating when I got upstairs. <laughs> and I did. I got I got I got a beating. But you know what? That taught me. I was just like after I was just like, wow, I'm never touching that again. And sure enough, I watched maybe almost 90% of the community get addicted. I saw watch kids' mothers that used to feed us and were really classy women um, having sex in a staircase with 10 little boys just to get high, you know, mm-hmm. like almost overnight. Like they went from being respectable heads of families to basically being, you know, trash in the streets. And then, yeah. yeah. But it went from that, like almost overnight, then crime, just people went crazy. So it just turned into a full epidemic of like the night of the living dead. And then people mm-hmm. just kill each other, beating each other. So that that really curved hip hop and, and the community a lot because um, it brought us out of innocence really fast, yeah. like really fast, you know? Yeah. And after that, after that epidemic, there was the AIDS epidemic and mm-hmm. then the entire city of New York has just gone through that huge process of gentrification. I mean, most of the The war on drugs. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm. sorry. Yeah, Mm. I mean, most of the things that we see on hip hop videos, but rock music videos from the eighties and the nineties just don't exist anymore. The skylines, the buildings just don't exist anymore. And what did that mean for the further development or well, not development, but deterioration of the culture then? Because the communities were disappearing. Well, what I learned now is I got older and got more involved in my neighborhood. I'm still in the same neighborhood. Literally, the tenement that I was born in is right across the street from me. And so the unfortunate, you know, the crazy thing, again, from my experience, which is I don't know why I was put through all this. I mean, maybe it's because what I do today about talking about it, I've been able to live, live it. My neighborhood became as lower part of Harlem, right? The end, the, the beginning part of Harlem. Um, so it was really diverse but it was always focused on because we have Central Park, like I'm, I'm two blocks from Central Park, then behind me is Riverside Park. So we're in the middle of these two big parks, we got all the train lines and it's just the, it's just the neighborhood that they, every, they wanted to develop. So they began, it was called urban development before gentrification. And mm-hmm. it started, that's how I ended up moving in. So what happens is that being that this is Lower Harlem, it was really the property like Central Park was actually owned by people, melanated people, African descent or aboriginals. So it was of color. So most of these properties were all owned by people of color, the land. And when they burnt everything down and with the drug epidemics, they were able to wipe that out. And then the system, when everything was burnt down and messed up, like I said, you could have your own building right here and next door have, and on both sides have burnt down abandoned lots and buildings. The city would, would then view that and say, well, the block is destroyed. We're gonna we're gonna take it into under intimate domain and make a project. So we have the first projects pop up here before they go further up. So they start to use this neighborhood as a experiment for this, and they called it urban development. Okay. So I come under that. So I end up moving from a tenement to a 34 build 30 floor building on Columbus Avenue that was brand new, mm-hmm. but. You know, it was crazy. It was like a city within a, a building. Like there was no security guards, no nothing. Again, we had to govern ourselves. And that's when I got down with it, with a gang. And that was the gang that ruled up there. But anyway, um, so 
the process was long-term. What I'm looking at now, the same buildings that they built back then, which they claimed was for people of color and low income, um, because the property originally was ours, was that they had a 30 to 40 year clause in it, which they could be then bought out. So it was basically designed to take at the end of the road, at the end of the, me living this long, 53 years and watching the whole process since I was a little you know, kid and living through it. It was just a big scheme, a scam to take the land away from the original people and the people right. of color. So what they did was they developed this and then they used taxpayer money to build these things. So it's a big scam. So then, cause then what happens is 30, 40 years later, after all the drug epidemics and they run these neighbors to the point where the people that did survive it are so traumatized, they don't want to live here no more. And on top of that, they're being pushed out. They're being told um, they're going to have to move and being bought out, given 10, 20,000. And they fleeing because they think they're going to lose it anyway. They don't, a lot of people didn't know that they had the power of their leases protecting them. So they gave that power up because they were told by lawyers, powerful lawyers in the building, political people will come visit and say, hey, you know, take this money and move out because we're mm. going to take your apartment anyway. And then, so they end up with building these properties with taxpayer money and then being able to sell these units for millions of dollars now individually as condos and co-ops and then replacing the board by, you know, people that's not originally from this community that hate us. And now the community is completely not ours. It's, yeah. It's, and this is what we know is the gentrification then, isn't it? And has the same thing happened in like the, the other areas? I mean, there were big hip hop cultures and communities down in like Bronx and stuff. So oh, yeah. It happened down this, there. This, this has been a, a process. They going like right now, Hall of 125th Street is actually in mid process of ready with this neighbor. This neighbor is fully, fully gentrified. Like I'm, in a, I'm, I'm a minority now, which is crazy because mm -hmm. we lose the majority, which also drives me crazy because I get treated, I have, to, I have to be on my P's and Q's. Just even walking my dog, there's not an incident where I go through something every single day. Like it's, it's outrageous. And, it, and it's, but Harlem, like 125th Street was known as Black Harlem. It's actually so gentrified, going through the gentrification right now. And all you have really like, you no longer have that class. You have a poor class, which is now people of color, or there's some there's some Caucasians that are actually drug addicted or mentally ill. They in that category. And then you got no real middle class. You got a, a rich class. So they go into these nice new buildings, basically. And then you have all these other people, you know, my people, our people, you know, people in the community, working class that are basically um not having opportunities just to be like experimental lab rats for mm -hmm. whatever the system is giving them, you know? And um, so, yeah, I'll, like it's spread in, Hall, in the Bronx, a lot of places got gentrified. Queens, a lot of projects even got knocked down and they rebuilt um, luxury buildings there. No, it's happening, it's all over the city. Like you've seen, like you remember a few years back, Williamburg and all those places in Brooklyn became yeah. hot art in communities. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what they did to first they got rid of us then they moved in these trendy artist people and all these other people they made it cool and now they got they were the gentrifiers now they being gentrified okay. now that they being pushed back they being pushed out and now that's going up to like people with big money and these big mm -hmm. builders but you can't live there now if you're not making like six figures you know what i mean so 
And at the same time, the culture that we started talking about, which came out of these places, is being completely like commodified and appropriated. And, you know, there's sort of creation of different roles and commercialization of it. And um, yeah, I mean, just to maybe reflect to the people that are listening why I wanted to really talk to George and his experience because this subject of commodification and appropriation is something that comes up in the yoga world a lot and this is where the idea for this podcast started with my background as a yoga teacher and the conversations that come up around the appropriation of that culture with your like white supremacists injecting power yoga and non-spiritual practices into mostly American and European culture. So it's, um, or American life, I should say, because the culture is the yoga (laughs) (laughs) or the hip hop. Um, And this is why I was drawing the similarities between the huge journey that you've had throughout your life and some of the other conversations that we've had with different people um, on the podcast around the yoga stuff. But to fast forward a little into the present day, um, your dharma, hmm, to think about the subject of the podcast, the title of the podcast, um, your dharma really is sharing your story um, and in the way that we met with these young people. And you still do that at home? Do you still do that in your community? Um, The last, because of COVID, it kind of like, I do. Actually, but not as much because the neighborhood doesn't have those kids anymore. You know what I mean? That would need that would need this. So if anything, like you said, it'll be a you know if I get approached, which I don't really want to do. I don't really do it because I'm not. Um, not to say I'm financially stable, but I have my career going where I make my money. Um, so I don't need to do stuff. But I'll get I'll get like asked to do things like. Bar mitzvahs and stuff like that, where it's not really to help a kid, it's really to be an entertainment for some event. Okay. So, so I don't, I don't do that. I don't, I don't do that. So what happens is, like right now, I work with, with different not for profit. Like there's one organization called the Children's Village, which is, which we have scheduled class now. So I don't, I don't do as many as I used to, but I do these sneaker workshops, which are called Art on Kicks. And this organization is called the Children's Village and they're based in Harlem. And they, they're um, a foundation where young teens, mostly Bloods and Crips, because they get caught up in the, like further in the Bronx and, and uptown on 150th in Harlem and those areas, the polo grounds, they get caught up and they, they, this, this program is an alternative for them not to go to Rikers Island. Um, okay. So they, yeah. the system puts them through this, this um this organization and they have to go to classes and go to after, yeah. pro, after school programs and they monitor them. So they hired me, my friend actually I grew up with, who was a break dancer, Stone Jackson, um, which we known each other since before it was break dancing when it was just up rock and, and floor rock and him and his brother were, I used to watch them in the schoolyard. And anyway, um, he's the director. So we actually have a class scheduled this we just spoke about it like literally two weeks. So it's funny, two weeks ago. So we scheduling some now. So I do these sneaker programs with them and I teach them how to, how to um, design these sneakers with spray paint and stuff and stencils. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and they go on, they can't believe that they've done this, what they've done. 
And then I teach them the, econ the economics of it, of saying to them, hey, look, you know, you spend time on social media, you know, probably just talking junk or looking at stupid videos. You actually have some really powerful uh, tools that you could actually manipulate and make and, and be independent and make money. So here goes a little tool. You could do this. You know, they learn on the sneakers, but I explained to them the same technique. You could do it on a shirt. You could do it on play clothing. And you have this platform where even if you start to build up, getting a custom, you know, from a friend or this and that, you could turn into actually a nice business, you know, at least for now to keep mm. you out of, you know, selling drugs in the street, you know. Um, so I, I still work with that, with, with that. So that's one organization. The other one was because of the pandemic, I haven't done them. Um, it was a couple of them, but I don't even think they exist anymore. Um, they got their funding cut. But that one's the main one, the Children's Village is called. They yeah. pretty big. They pretty big. They actually have a lot of facilities where I've, I've gone to that they have like where it's like a facilities, like a little prison up mm. in Dodd Ferry. And I, I went to, <laughs> to teach these kids. And you know what's crazy? I'll just touch on this story real quick just to show you how, how crazy this is. Um, when you do stuff like this, how you can't predict what happens. The last time I went up and I did, they took me to teach and it was all basically like maybe two two boys two or three boys but they were like they were they were brolic they've been locked up they've been in rikers island they like little men and they tough and they like so they not they can't they can't be in the regular program they got them locked up you know but they're locked up is like a big it's not even like a prison prison but they locked up so there's a fence around it you know it's not like a full prison so um i went and met up with them and it turned out that one of the kids, I'm, I, we're doing it. He like, you know, you taught me before. I went to one of your programs when I used to teach at a Beacon program when they were really little. He actually was a student of mine at one of the Beacon programs. And now he's like this big, this teenage gang member who's all full of muscles and stuff. And right. So it was kind of sad in a way, but then the way it wasn't because um, he was so excited and happy and felt so comfortable with me. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It was just it's weird when you go through those type of situations, you know. Yeah. So I had to share that with you. It's just <laughs> it's kind of nice to know that despite what he's been through, he's still around, I guess. Yeah, yeah and then to see that smile on his face, like I guess being what he was going through and what he'd been through and having to be this tough guy, because I taught him when he was so young the same thing. He was actually excited to do the sneakers again because it probably brought him back some youth good nice youth memories when he was mm. still at home wasn't in the gangs yet you know what i mean so yeah, yeah. i saw it in him like you know yeah. weird you know <laughs> did you ever think like i mean you've had such a crazy life and like you said this the there must be even more moments than you've mentioned where you've been on the edge of falling into something life-threatening no you've been in life-threatening situations but things that have actually ended your life. You've been on the edge of those things and come back from that, like the drug taking, having the wanted posters. For anyone that's listening, wanted posters were still a thing in New York not that long ago. Um, yeah, having a, a, a contract out on you. Do you ever look at things like that and just think, shit, oh my God, like how do you feel about your life to where you are now being exhibited next to Picasso? 
I think I think it's funny you say that because I actually had a rough night last night. So actually, this podcast is might might be some that I actually needed. So the universe works in, in amazing ways. Mm-hmm. So I'm great. I'm grateful to you a lot. You you wouldn't know how much. Um, I actually like. It's hard to explain because it's some that I lived with all my life. It's now that I'm not experiencing so much life-threatening stuff that I feel weird. I feel out of my element. Um, I think because I jumped into gangs really early, real gangs, mafia-type gangs, not 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 even like the Bloods and Crips stuff. These kids are involved with. No, I was in I was in some real serious stuff. Like I said, contracts, like real contracts, being paid off to adults to live for you to 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 kill you i mean and then you know those people being killed later on and you know it's just it was crazy and i went through years of that stuff i caught fed case i've been to trial on you know i got acquitted on a fed case in 2002 was probably the last case i had another case where i was looking at 20 years to life that i beat. i have the total about six cases that i beat that would have took me out of the streets um so the weird thing is, um, it's it's a life like that. Um, you can't really heal from, and you can't really change, like those instincts that you develop. I don't know if that makes sense. You develop a certain instincts, and sometimes they might be wrong. A lot has to do with trusting people. Um, any little thing for me brings up a flag automatically of not trusting somebody no matter how close they are to me. So it destroys a lot of my relationships because of the survival mechanism that's embedded in me. Um, So like, and it also gives me that hunger for me to get to be where I was hanging next to Picasso's. I literally went to and knocked on every single gallery door on that strip of Newberry Street to, you know, to get that deal, you know, myself, no agent, no nothing, just, you know, that raw hustling, like, you know, I knew, so it has its benefits, but then again, it puts you, once you, it opens that door for you, then those other instincts come in, mm. you know what I mean? So yeah. you don't really have peace and you can't really enjoy even the successful moments because then you have to be on your P's and Q's, you know what I mean? Like, like, and it is not just like your regular P's and Q's like somebody else. For me, it's more drastic. It's more survival. You know what I mean? It's more, it's more drastic. It's more you know, it drains you. It's more like your whole mind, your spirit has to be in it because, you know, it kicks back into, you know, like it's life or death. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's nothing. It's a completely in- new scenario. You've become, you've spent so much of your life in survival mode that something new is just so overwhelming that you immediately go back to survival mode because survival mode became the norm. It's like flipped it kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then and then the sad thing is that I grew up with so much violence as I was little um all throughout my life that violence was actually like a language to me mm-hmm. and and it's been now that I've been able to like control a lot of it but again it's a challenge like if I'm in the streets now and and you get these new gentrifiers and they try to like walk into me I'm I'm pushing people to the side and they looking at me like I'm crazy, but it's like, in a way it's like, I can't really control it. You know what I mean? And I'm ready still at this age of 53, I work out, I'm still like in, in the front frame of mind of fighting, you know what I mean? Like 
Like if I feel threatened, I feel like, and it, and it sucks to have to live like that, especially as an artist, like that wants to, that creates and touches so many people that I have to still, I don't get peace. I still have to bounce back and forth of, yeah. of, you know, wanting to be this really nice guy and be peaceful and help and then still have to be defensive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry to share that with you. <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's good to understand it. George, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure on my end. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I hope, I hope your listeners, I hope this has been helpful for the listeners. Yeah. So- <laughs> We've got the cat joining us. Hello, cat. Yes, yeah, can't say hi. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for st- sharing your story and your journey with us. It's, it's just so interesting to get to dive below what, has really become the commercialized glamour of the hip hop culture. We were talking yeah. before we hit record, we were talking about a film that's just come out um, around the meeting of skateboarding and graffiti art in New York. And I was saying how even in that, it's it's full of a lot of raw footage from some kid that was a skateboarder and artist at the time. and. Even in that, has it having been put together as a cool, real, you know, real life film, there's a hell of a lot of brushing over of things, a hell of a lot of, of magical scenarios that just happened where somebody made Zoo, Zoo York, you know, oh, poof, it was just there. Like, and it, and it uh, you know, you know that scratching the surface is going to bring out the proper stories. And you, George, we've been blessed with your proper story. So thank you for that. Well, and I thank you because I think, you know, you know, giving me the platform, you're not giving me the platform, you're giving the platform through me from so many people that didn't make it to be able to talk about this stuff. So that's, that's another pressure I have is that I feel like I don't tell my story, I tell in a story of generations that got wiped out and that you no know, people wouldn't do them justice today. Like you said, they'll just, you know, their sacrifices gets wiped under the table and it's like, you know, hey, let's have this party. But, you know, like yeah. when you see all that footage of those older, those kids breakdancing, trust me, um, almost all of them, it's all tragic endings, all of them, yeah. you know? So you see them having a good time and you see those battles, you see those clips of the eighties and stuff. Um, trust me, majority, probably like 99% of them fell to a really tragic story, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah, really hard. Yeah. So I thank you. And I thank people like you. And I thank your listeners because, again, this is a voice from the voiceless. You're the messenger. You're the yes. messenger. <laughs> That's probably why my name is Sen, right? Messenger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. And for everyone listening, of course, as usual, usual, I will tag George. You can follow him. You can find his website. You can look at his artwork. You might even get to visit the gallery or maybe the neighborhood that he's still in, in New York. George Marillo, Sen one, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> and for everyone listening, I will be back next month with another bite-sized conversation um, to keep you entertained, to keep you engaged, to have you diving into aspects of culture and life and wonderful stories from across the world. Thanks for listening.